We are continuing our study in Ezekiel, and um, thankfully we have this week to do it because we're going to be off for like I think a, a month. I think after this, right? Really? Probably, yeah. So, which is fine. I got things to do. So let's let's continue on here. All right. So we we left off last week as an introduction to Ezekiel, but we really dwelled upon which was really in chapter one, um, the, the the miraculous presentation of God Himself or the pre-incarnate Jesus Himself, right? on this throne that was carried by cherubim, we talked about interloping from higher dimensions into this dimensional space. And then a lot of people ask, and, and I'm, I know we've talked about this many times in the past, but why is it important to think of things like this? Why, does any, why should anybody care how the mechanics might work of the spiritual realm interloping with what we have as reality here? Well, it's very important. Because in order to understand God, we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we know as Christians, and I get there are a lot of Christians who probably don't really understand this, that spirit doesn't mean ethereal. That spirit doesn't mean, well, God is a wisp in the wind. There is a reality that is more solid than our reality here. And it's only when they interlope with us that we get to understand what's going on. Okay, so we're the anomaly. We're the ones that really shouldn't be here, if you, if you get my drift. All of this dust of the earth stuff is, an, is a, a, con, a contrivation, if that's the word. So understanding, and we also know one very other important thing here, which is, which is really key, and we know this, that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the physical stuff on this earth or with each other as physical people. It is really our battles with, with the spirit realm, okay, with archons, with prince, principalities, and this whole thing. And guess what we're destined to be after all this is said and done, right? There will always be a physical universe. We know that because at the end of the book of Revelation, it is said, John says that, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and that's what we're waiting for. So even during the millennium, when Jesus comes in, this, in his second coming and rules and reign, we're not even talking about that yet. We're still talking about ruling and reigning over this physical dispensation. It's after that. It's after the final white throne, great white throne judgment when all those who are going to be turned into hell are there. And then hell is locked away for eternity. And there'll be no more death, there'll be no more pain, and no more suffering, no more crying. And then the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem will come down. But the earth will remain forever. This physical universe that supports it will remain forever. And God's throne will be here in the new Jerusalem that will hover over the real Jerusalem or the physical Jerusalem as a probably a cube in those days. Now, I'm just stating that because that's why we study it in this mode. And as you notice, and I'm pretty sure you have, things are really getting weird in these end times. We agree? And technology, right? But you know and you see it. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist or you, and you don't have to be a physicist or a quantum mechanic expert, mechanics expert to know that you're seeing artificial intelligence. You're seeing all these things that technology is bringing so fast that they're merging us into the spirit realm more quickly now than ever before, whether we like it or not, and it's undeniable now. It is undeniable. It's undeniable. So we're better off being armed with all of this, which was already here and in the scriptures to understand it's how it works, at least, not if, if not for our own comfort and joy, which it should be, but at least to be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us when these things happen. 
and we can say with confidence don't be scared of that UFO in the sky it's because of such and such it's an anomaly I mean to us but it's it's spiritual don't be afraid of these demons or these things that are happening you're seeing people get possessed it's not them in their own bodies anymore or they're there but it's something that overtook them in a spiritual mode that infected their brain right I mean we understand these things and that's what we need to know so that's why we do that okay I wanted to make that point because I just think it's very important to reiterate that otherwise people think of this as what they call woo-woo right woo-woo what what is all this crazy stuff you're talking about I just want to know Jesus and him crucified oh no you don't you need to get away from the milk and you need to get into the meat and that's what we've been doing for over a decade now and we're going to continue doing it that way but that's my point and my story and I'm sticking to it so we're going to continue now <laughs> in Ezekiel We've gone through all of that uh, portable throne stuff on those terabim, interloping into our dimensions. And now we're going to move into, uh, continuing in chapter uh, 22. Let me just start oh. this application here. Yeah. I'm not chapter oh. 22, verse 22. I get those mixed up. <laughs> See, he, he was already saying, well, we're done for the night. Let's go. We're done for the next year. <laughs> Cha uh, verse 22. Chapter oh, chapter yeah, chapter 1. Yeah, chapter 1. Yeah, chapter 1. And we're just going to continue. It's on the same theme as, as what we left off last week. All right. So make sure that's running. Good. Verse 22. Yes. I read it when I get home. You're going to read it? Good. I always do. Good, because we have the same Bibles. That's a good, good thing. All right. So continuing along in that thought of this portable throne that interloped. Verse 22, now stretched over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse. Now, this is the platform that this portable throne is on. It's the, it's the floor, if you will. An expanse looking like the terrible and awesome shimmer of icy crystal. Now, look at the, look at the uh, I guess you'd call this a, is that a verb? No, it's not a verb. It's an adjective, an adjective, shimmer of icy crystal. Under the expanse, there were wings stretched out straight, one toward another. Every living being had two wings which covered his body on one side and on the other side as they moved. I also heard their wings as the sound of a great rushing waters. Now, could that also be not only the beating of a wing, but you know when, when you hear bees' wings or, or uh, maybe um, uh, what, what's the, what's the, the Locust. kind? Locusts. Locusts, absolutely, that's one of them. Cicadas. Cicadas. They could sound like engines. What is a cicada? Cicada is called the 17-year locust. Oh, oh. oh. 17 years. Really? I never knew that. Yeah. Why are they call the 17-year locust? Because they, um, well, larvae hatch every 17 years and they make a tremendous racket, at least in the mid-Atlantic states. No kidding. Because yeah. we used to hear them in New York a lot. Yeah. The cicadas. Yeah. It's 17 years. Wow. Wow. That's not, I never knew that. But but those noises can sound like modern-day engines of some sort. Yeah. Just saying. We don't know. Just saying. But as they moved, I also heard, okay, the sound of their wings, like, like the voice of the Almighty, the sound of a tumult, like the noise of an army camp, like those locusts that you were just saying. Whenever they came to a stop, they lowered their wings. So it sounds like some articulating system that propels this thing, whatever it is. So the four living creatures seem to be carrying an outstretched, on outstretched wings, a crystalline firmament above their heads. So think of a flat sheet 
of thick ice. I'm not saying it's ice, but this is like something that's translucent, that that shimmers and shines and something like that. And this was above them, and the throne was on top of that. This expanse above them glitters like transparent ice, but we don't know what it is. But it's just saying the glimmering and shimmering of, of glass with spotlights on it or diamonds when you see spotlights on them. So this is also similar, and I'm, you can keep your fingers in your Bibles or your electronic Bibles there. I'm just going to read to you. It's similar to another, another uh, representation of this in Revelation 4, verses 6 through 8, that John saw. And I'm going to read it, and think of the comparison here now with Ezekiel. Revelation 4, verse 6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass unto crystal. Right? This is similar. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne, there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So see the similarities between John's vision and Revelation many, many, many centuries later and, and Ezekiel. Uh, Revelation 4, 7, and the first beast was like a lion. Ah, here we go. Now we have these faces again on these things. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast was like a calf. You see these, the resemblance here of what Ezekiel saw? And the third had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like an eagle. Now what did we see in Ezekiel's vision? We saw the same things, except the calf was like an ox, in his opinion. But we're seeing this, it looks like it's the same thing. John saw the same device, the same portable throne, it seems, as did Ezekiel. Ezekiel was more expressive, but this is what we're saying here. And finally, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and, the, and they rest not day or night, and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Very similar, and that's my point. So in this instance, the four living creatures are not, not carrying and moving, but standing on the sparkling expanse which the throne stood on, and they were also surrounding the throne. So it seems like it could be different accounts of the same type of device. That's what it sounds like. And a final analogy I'm going to use, you can, you can just listen, or you can turn there. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. And here is, is a, a, an account of Moses and the others as recorded in Exodus. Then Moses went up, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, glimmering platform of some sort, right? And as it were, the body of heaven in, his, in its clearness. It could be a clear platform of some sort, again, with very sparkling, described a little differently than Ezekiel or John. Exodus 24, verse 11. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did and eat and drink. So anyway, that was just an extension of that, how they reacted to it. But you see the analogies here. And that's all I wanted to bring out. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 25 now. And amongst all of this that's swirling around Ezekiel, and I can believe how amazed he must be. And there was a voice above the expanse, above this platform, this shimmering ice platform, if you will, that was over their heads. Whenever they stopped, they lowered their wings. Now, above the expanse, above this platform, there was over their heads, and there was something that resembled a throne. Hmm, just like in Revelation. It appeared like it was made of sapphire or lapis lazuli, and seated on that which 
on that which looked like a throne. So he really can't tell what this is, but it looks like a throne on top of this great expanse. High up, high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. Bless you. Now, upward from that which appeared to be his waist, I saw something like glowing metal that looked like it was filled with fire all around it and downward from that which appeared to be his waist, I saw like fire and there was a brightness and a remarkable radiance like a halo around him. Now, remember John's vision or actually when Jesus appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation. The same description... He did? He did. He, when John was on the Isle of Patmos and Jesus appeared to him, what did he explain about Jesus? He was like, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His hair was white. He had a, a robe, a white robe that was shining. Sounds to me like it's almost the same type of description of the one who's sitting on this throne that Ezekiel saw and the figure that John described when he encountered Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in his radiant body in the book of Revelation. Uh, when Oh, you know, in the days he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Okay. So upon this throne was a man. Obviously, this is God, who either was manifesting himself as the man that would be Jesus Christ, much later in history, or a man simply because human man is designed after his image. Therefore, God would look like a man when he presents himself to us. I'm going to say it's the pre-incarnate Jesus, because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Okay? That's what I'm going to say. Anyway. So let's continue to verse 28. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So now appear this in your mind. You see this platform. You see this throne with a very brilliant man-looking being, a being looking like a man on this throne in radiance. There appears a rainbow over it as a rainbow appears on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory and the brilliance of the Lord. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? And when I saw that, it's like, did it take you this long? I fell face downward and I heard a voice of one speaking, <laughs> with a capital O, by the way. I mean, I would have collapsed probably long before that. <laughs> I would have probably collapsed where I couldn't. How could, he re, how could he remember this stuff? Did he have a writing horn with ink and, and some kind of scroll that he wrote this down? I mean, how long was this thing there? We don't know. To me, this is all amazing. But he finally falls. <laughs> so that's not, you know, I mean, at least he's human about it, you know. So glory. What is this glory? I mean, this is the likeness of the glory and the brilliance of the Lord. Now, this is indescribable. And remember, God said himself that no one could see God and live. So we know that he didn't see the real, true brilliance and glory of God. That's the first you thing. You don't see his face. Right. And we know that Moses didn't, uh, didn't see it either, although he asked and he saw what is described as God's back, but he put him in a cleft of the rock as he was passing by. So we know it's not that, but, but this representation of what he's saying is so brilliant and so glorious, we can't describe because we don't understand, because he can't describe in words what he saw with his physical eyes as interloped into this physical dimension. It is amazing to me. So, let's note, let's note at this point the obvious. That when the prophets or anyone else describe something in their day, whether it, whether it be things or nations or anything else, and this is the point, they were constrained to couch them into terms that were familiar to themselves in their time. 
Now, we know this for sure because we know that when we look at, and we'll look at later on, not tonight, but we'll look at Ezekiel 38 when those lineup of nations come against Israel, which is coming very soon now, right? Mm -hmm. We know that we have to look at the names or sometimes the peoples of these nations as they were in history. We have to know that. That's part of learning scripture, right? We have to know that, otherwise we will not be able to figure out what God is trying to tell us. So studying scripture, as we see, is not just, well, I'm Christian now and all I need to know is the New Testament or parts of the New Testament. You're going to get what you put into it, right? And that's what we've learned. That's what I've learned. It takes, it takes a lot of study. It takes a lot of study. And the more deeply you because God, these are like nuggets of truth. If you want to get rich with gold, you can either buy gold if you have the money that's already been mined and processed and refined, or you can dig it for yourself and go through that, right? And believe me, the Bible's truths you cannot buy with money. You have to dig. The Holy Spirit allows you, though, to find the places to dig and gives you the tools. But you have to do it. And you also have to make yourself, you're sure that you avail yourself of people who you are guided to by the Holy Spirit that understands that have trod this road already. So that you don't have to do it again, but you can learn from them. But you have to be careful of false teachers and so forth. So I, that's what I thought. was It's it's obvious, but it's meaning. Our job is to translate the scriptures by studying God's word and what we can also learn in our own time, okay, in our own time of sacred writings and secular writings and history that's already gone before us, including the sciences, what we know to be true now is very different than, let's say, we were sitting here 100 years ago. We'd still be able to read the same scriptures, but we wouldn't be able to understand a lot of what we read by the same token. We could study Ezekiel 38 and 39, but 100 years ago, we would not understand the placement of those nations and how they line up, right? And one more point I want to make on that, because I found this very interesting. When I was preparing my study in the book of Daniel, which was a long time ago now, which is the next book in this <laughs> sequence, by the way, but when I did that, I looked at, as a matter of fact, I did that here when Veronica, we have a friend named Veronica, she was here with us, and she, she was given an old antique Bible, remember that? Yep. And she brought it here to show me, and I borrowed it, and I looked up, and I made an example of then, this thing was written in the 1800s, late 1800s, right? And it was a commentary. So I looked at its description of some of the things in the prophecies of the book of Daniel, and this learned scholar who wrote the, the commentary in that Bible was, I don't want to say off base, but because of the point in time, because Israel hadn't come back into the land yet, right? That didn't happen until 1948. Israel didn't win back Jerusalem in 1967 yet. In, in the 1800s, you know, John Darby, all these people were just starting to think about it was getting time for Israel to come back in her land after the diaspora. But that wasn't a very, very wide a popular idea yet, although this person I'm sure thought of it. So my point is, you can look by the commentaries in old Bibles of these passages and see what they knew because everything was in the context of what was current in history and science and those things. And so we're pretty blessed to be where we are today, yeah. right, to understand. Anyway, I have a picture here of the Phoenicians and Babylonians they had cherubim-type architectures as well because they had their own gods and stuff, as we know. And they had certain implements, and I have two pictures I'm going to show you, and it's in my notes here, of large platforms that are archaeological drawings or drawings of archaeological finds that they have and some cave, not cave, but uh, you know, dwelling drawings on, on walls of large flat platforms and on top of which were thrones of kings. 
So I'm going to show it to you, and I'll show it to you also, Sue. But you can see this table here. Look at the feet on this table. Look at the wheels on the bottom and the cherubim with the spread out wings holding up a, a platform. The top one. Can you see it? And the bottom one is a drawing on, this is a representation of, I'll show it to you in a second, Sue, um, of a drawing that they found on a wall in Egypt or somewhere, wherever it was. But there are these men with upstretched arms holding up this deity with wings. See it on the bottom? So I'm going to see if you can see this. Here's the one I was talking about, Sue. You see the table? You see the, the, the legs have cherubim at the top with outstretched wings touching each other, holding up a platform. Just like that Ezekiel image. And this is nothing that's biblical. This was from ancient Phoenicia or Babylon or something. Then the bottom one here is the one I was describing where you can see the two figures holding up a royal deity of some sort of eagle on, on a platform of wings and it's on top as if it's on its own throne. You see? So where... Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so where do they get these ideas? Just like, if you notice, every secular society and every religion has a story of a pre, a, a pre-Noahic flood. I mean, a pre, uh, pre, yeah, pre, uh, no, uh, well, yeah, right. no way yeah. flood. Sorry, yeah. pre-edemic flood. No, no, but I'm no. a flood. <laughs> but they have a story of it. Yeah, they all. And theirs is usually wrong, but they have a, because some of these things in history are so undeniable. Some of these things in history are well known. And I said last time we were together that there was a fragment of an Egyptian scroll at some average Egyptian citizen who was alive at the time of Israel being led out by God, writing of this pillar of a cloud that was over Israel, and he thought it was some God judging them that was going to consume them, that he came down and made it manifest that as a cloud that was going to choke them out or something. So you see, history and, and, and science and all these things, whatever we, we are now, corroborates all this. Okay, so now we're going to move on to chapter 2. Hopefully that was enough for chapter 1. <laughs> Chapter 2. <laughs> chapter 2 now. God has already come to Ezekiel in this very special way, to say the least. And chapter 2 now chronicles the beginning of God's call of Ezekiel. Now remember, he's in the captivity with them at this river Kibar where he saw this vision of God and his portable throne. Now this is a very, relatively short chapter, so we'll probably end up pretty quick tonight. <laughs> But it is, it is still pregnant with some meaning, and we're going to get into it, because it's pretty dense in, in what it means, because this is now the beginning of the description of God telling Ezekiel, hey, I have something special for you, my friend. But he doesn't call him his friend. He calls him son of man. We're going to get into that. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 2, and we're going to find out about God's purpose in his call to action of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel chapter 2, we're going to go through the whole, the whole verses 1 through 10 as we can, um, and then we will um, cease for the evening. All right. Chapter 2, verse 1. And he said unto me, now this is the God on the throne, he said unto me, Son of man, and remember the Son of man, stand upon your feet, and I will speak unto you. And the Spirit entered into me, Ezekiel, when he spake unto me. So here's a very powerful you know, God is not just speaking in voice. He's entering Ezekiel in spirit to really grab him and make him understand. And you're going to see a better representation of this a little later on. 
But just think of that. Think of what he's saying here. So the Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me and set me upon my feet. Because remember, in the last episode, he fell finally (laughs) at the presence of God in his glory, right? So he sets him on his feet that I heard him. and, And so he set me upon my feet and that I heard him that spake unto me. And Ezekiel chapter two and verse three. And he said unto me, again, son of man, I send you to the children of Israel. Okay, so we know what this is about now. To a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this day. Well, that's probably why they're in Babylon. Okay, so this is all common knowledge. So here's the first point I want to make here. God calls Ezekiel with a term that's pretty prolific throughout the scriptures. Well, let's, we have to look at this term, why it's used. The son of man. Let's look at this for a second. It's very familiar to us, and we have to look at it because it's used in different ways. So we have to, we, you can figure out why he's saying it this way here, but I want to make it clear. So this phrase, when used here, is defined by, or any place, is, used by, is defined by its context in the scripture and, and who God's talking to and who the target son of man is. And God uses it to address Ezekiel. You know how many times in the book of Ezekiel? Eighty-five times. Eighty-five times he calls him in the book of Ezekiel, son of man. It's like, I think God knows who he's talking to already. I think Ezekiel knows it's him. It's like sort of someone talking to me and telling me, Michael, 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 85 times during a conversation. I, even the dog will bark at that. You know, I might feel like I'm getting scolded. So, so let's sample. Now, keep your place where you are. I'm just going to sample because I want to make this clear because there's two major contexts of this, of this phrase that we're going to see here in scripture the first context is going to be son of man and used in the context of us being flesh low-level dust of the earth human beings okay i would never say and some people think that we're worthless now i know we are not worthless but what i'm saying to you is if you look at the dust of the man scenario they say our chemistry at current prices since we're mostly water anyway is probably worth about what five eight dollars if you if you distilled us into a powder and separated all the elements we wouldn't be worth very much physically. Something like that. It wouldn't be worth very much. Unless you have gold teeth. That's true. You're right. <laughs> and of course, unless you have a lot more. Well, fat, I guess, is not much. You're right. You could have gold teeth. They have a nice grill. Yeah. Uh, do they take all your jewelry off first, too? <laughs> so so we'll say you're worth a couple bucks more than me because if you have a gold tooth. But, but that's the point. So I'm going to read to you just a few scriptures that make that clear. And you don't have to turn there because I'm going to go just a few of them. I'm going to read them to you. Numbers 23 and verse 19, where it says, well, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. As he said, and shall he not do it? He should not repent if he said, and how shall he not do it? Or has he... Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? So what he's saying is God is absolutely reliable, unlike us. Makes sense? That's, what, that's the context here. Then in Job, God really reveals himself, especially in those 63 or whatever questions that he, he asks Job. And he tells him, stand up like a man, gird your loins, because I'm going to pound you with questions. But in that whole book we know that remember job's friends were trying to comfort job and trying to help him figure out what god was doing it's like you know you guys are dumb and you you are going to get slapped if god if job doesn't pray for you but you know all about that but let's read 
uh, three verses here in chapter 25. This is Bildad speaking to Job, convincing him that a man cannot be righteous. Like Job didn't know that already. But, but here's his point. This is what he says. This is Bildad talking to Job in verses uh, 4 through 6. How then can man be justified with God? So this is a good question. Like, if, if, how can a man be justified? When a man can't be righteous, you cannot just be justified of yourself, which I'm sure Job knew, and he knew it. How can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that he is, that, he that is born of women? So we know that this, this fleshly person cannot be righteous. Behold, even to the moon and it shines not, yet the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less that a worm, that's pretty low, a worm, and the son of man, which is a worm. <laughs> Makes it very clear. All right, so that's Job. And then Isaiah chapter 51, verse 12. I, even I, am he, this is God now saying this through Isaiah, that comforts you. Who are you? And you should be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass. What he's basically saying is, you're afraid of a human being who's, who's going to die. He's going to die one day. That's how defective human beings are. We're going to die because of sin. They're going to die. And, and, and when he dies, he's going to go right like the grass. He's going to be burnt or, or buried, right? Psalm 8 and verse 4. What is man that you are even mindful of him? And the son of man that you even visit him? And that's the way we feel, right? Aren't you honored that God even looks upon us without crushing us, never mind looking upon us and making us clean and calling us his friend and calling us righteous? That's the other son of man, which we're going to talk about in a second. That's when he called us son of God. That's right. Well, but the son of man is also the son of God in the yeah. other context. Right. So we have to look at that. Psalm 80, verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of thy right hand and upon the son of man who, who made strong for thyself. Well, that, I should have picked that one because that's kind of, I should have read that in the Amplified Version. Um, let's go to the next one. Psalm 144. It made sense when I looked at it, but it's not really jiving right now. But Psalm 144 and verse 3. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Again, like the other one we just read. Or the son of man that you make account of him. And the final one here in this context is Psalm 146 and verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, which means, you know, higher sons of men that achieve something, that are rulers. So don't push your trust in them, nor in the son of man, nor in average people, in whom there is no help. So don't trust me for help. You know what I'm saying? And you already knew that. But now let's look at that quickly at the other side of this coin. Here's how Jesus used the term, and he himself spoke of himself in his own words as the Son of Man. So let's look at that. Luke chapter 9, 58. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds have the air, or the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man does not have anywhere to lay his head. So obviously he's talking about himself. The next one. Luke 11, 30. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. And we know what he was talking about there, that he said the only sign that will be given to an unbelieving generation is as the sign of Noah, that he will, be, he will die, right? He will go into the Sheol be un, be for three days and three nights, and then he will be resurrected. And that was the only sign, and that's what he's saying there. Verse 12, 8. Also, I say, uh, Luke 12, uh, verse 8. 
Also, I say unto you, whoever shall confess me, now who's this me, before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. And finally, John 12 and verse 23, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And that's the final point I want to make. He, he was glorified before he became man. We agree he was God. He was the Word. He was the Logos, the, the, the second person of the Trinity. But he came as pure man, which means he could be or was to be glorified again, right? And if it happened to him, guess what's going to happen to us who are in Christ? We shall see him because we shall be glorified. And how do we know that? Because we're told in Scripture that you and I as sons of men will also be glorified because we shall see him as he is. And he just said, the Son of Man, the hours come, the Son of Man shall be glorified. So interesting. Now, why did I make all that? Because I think some of these terms we gloss over. And like if God calls Ezekiel, not by his name, not by, hey, you, he already knows like, hey, buddy, or you, and he doesn't call every prophet and everyone he spoke to son of man all the time. But here he used it 85 times or 87 times, whatever it was, in the book of Ezekiel. So you have to look at it and say, why did he choose that? As you keep this in mind, well, I want you to keep this in mind because obviously he means son of man like you are really just a man. okay? And you, I'm choosing you not for you because of me. I have a special purpose for you and I have to give you the Holy Spirit to make you usable. That's a reflection on us, too. But think of the very special calling that Ezekiel has. And we're going to, as we go through it, as the Son of Man, and what God enables him to do, what also God puts him through, because us as sons of men, and Jesus, when he was here as the Son of Man, we're also made to suffer. And God makes him suffer pretty well. Okay. I read somewhere where it says, Son of Man, when, and when he repents and accepts Christ, then he calls him Sons of God. Yeah, that's true, but yeah, right, we are we are children of God. But if you look at see, but the, the, again, you have to look at the context. You're right, and and that's the that's the big deal because if you also look at when he says the sons of men came into the daughters of women in Genesis, yeah. people don't want to believe that angels actually had intercourse with human women, mm -hmm. but we know it's a fact. People don't want to believe it because it's just abhorrent. Okay, it may be abhorrent, but it's true. And how do we know that? Because the sons of men, I mean, the sons of God there are talking about angels. Angels, yeah. Why? Because when man sinned, he was now a layer of abstraction removed from God. So he's no longer considered a direct son of God anymore. That's why Jesus had to redeem us to make us sons of God again. So you're right. That's why only through Jesus can we be sons of men and also sons of God. Without Jesus, we're sons of men, but we are certainly not sons of God. And that's the fact. So you're right. Absolutely right. Good point. All right. So we're going to wrap up here shortly because I see it's... Actually, I don't have to wrap up here shortly, but I can, just for your sake. <laughs> so anyway, comparing these two, we can easily see the context within which God uses this term for Ezekiel, and I wanted to make that clear. Um, the term is used with Ezekiel and with others, with the exception of Jesus himself, as we saw, suggests that in contrast to the glorious and mighty God and the cherubim, remember Jesus came and was made a little lower than the angels as son of man. So we have to look at that. So lower than cherubim that, that convey his throne, Ezekiel is a mere human being of the dust of the ground and fallen natures of it. So as is this physical world, so is Ezekiel and us. But he is made in the image of God. 
Yet Ezekiel is special because of that. And he's being singled out as a chosen vessel for a particular work, and there he will be spiritually endowed to perform it. And that, by the way, is our story, isn't it? <clears throat> also, finally, if you notice, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's using it as a title. It's a title. When we're called sons of men, it's a condition. <laughs> it's a condition. So, anyway, all right. Also, an interesting note here is that the term is used many times in the Old Testament. You can see that through the Old Testament. You can do a simple search and you'll find it. But it's only used one time in the Old Testament when it speaks of Jesus. Think of this. I'm going to read it to you. It's interesting. I found that. It's like, this is interesting. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And this is Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heavens. Oh, he's on that chariot again. And came to the Ancient of Days, came to God, the Father, and they brought him, the Son of Man, near the Ancient of Days. And there was given him, when Jesus is now at the right hand of God, this is in his vision, right? He's at the right hand of, of God, and there... At that point, this Son of Man, Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Isn't that what Jesus is coming back to establish? That all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, right? So the kingdom comes in the millennium, which when all that will be true. But then we know that in the new heaven and the new earth, he is also the king of that. He transfers it to God, but he's still the co-regent with God here, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So that's the only son of man in the Old Testament that is referring to Jesus' title as son of man. Okay, so let's continue with verse 4, and we're going to wrap up shortly here. Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 4. Now again, we're going back to his assignment that God is giving him. So the people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Oh, he just said that, but he's saying it again. <laughs> say to them, now here's what he's going to say to them. Here's, what you, here's your assignment, Ezekiel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. So we know that he's going to speak on behalf of God, which is a very solemn thing. And they're probably not going to like it. Aren't they the ones who have the fame, they're being famous for stoning the prophets? <laughs> yep. So when God tells you to go to someone and say, thus saith the Lord, be careful, because I'm telling you what, just as a side note, and we know this, there are some churches you can go into, and if you quote scripture, you can get in trouble for it, because you're too fundamentalist. Thus saith the Lord. No, 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 no. i got to tell you a story. I don't want to, we have to use scripture uh, lightly here. You see what I'm saying, right? I don't have to go any further with that. So it's the same thing. Whenever God says any of us to say, thus saith the Lord, be careful. Be careful, because you're going to get it. You, you, you know, you know, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but you can also get wounded in the house of a friend too. And they ask Jesus, "Where did you get these wounds?" Right? It's the same thing. We're gonna get, we're gonna get persecuted most probably and most intently by those who say they're our brothers and sisters. It's the same thing for Ezekiel, and that's the point. Okay. Uh, verse five. So listen to this. So I says, "Thus saith the Lord." He says, "And whether they listen or not, <laughs> so Ezekiel." When you tell them, I'm going to deliver you God's words, God's words, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people. This I'm reading from the Amplified Version now, because I like it better when it comes to some of these things. For they are rebellious people. So basically, don't expect them to like what you're going to tell them from me, God's saying. They will know, though, at that point, that a prophet has been among them. 
And again, they have a reputation for stoning the prophets, so don't expect much here. And you, son of man, Ezekiel, do not be afraid of them or their words. By the way, that's a recommendation for us, isn't it? Do not be afraid, though, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. They're all evil. They're all going to backbite you. They're all going to not like what I'm sending you to do. But do not be afraid, whatever they say, or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. I'm, I'm sure Ezekiel's probably ready to fall again at this point. That's what I would think. Verse 7. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, you, son of man, you, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like the rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. You see, the strong God does not mince words. And I found that out. You know, God's a loving God. Is he nice? Absolutely. But he's a lot more than nice. He's a lot more than nice. It's right. And you know what? And, and, I, and, and I think the problem is, is when we, when we dwell on the niceness, we look at God as our good buddy. He's not my buddy. He is my king. He is my sovereign. I'm honored that he calls me friend. And, and what is the outgrowth of Jesus saying, I call you friend? It's only because he's letting us know what he's doing, and that's in this word. That's a privilege. So think of it. He's letting Ezekiel know what he's doing. As a matter of fact, you're going to see as we go through the book of Ezekiel, he pulls him by the hair and really shows him what he's doing. That's a privilege and an honor, but it doesn't make it any lighter for us that when God says something, we must listen and take it wholeheartedly and say, yes, God. We're even allowed to question them, but we are never allowed to, to, to just sink. We're never allowed to question when he says, because he's already saying, I know you're going to want to be afraid, but I'm commanding you, do not be afraid. That's what he commands me and you to do. Don't be afraid. So then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both side of it, sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Ooh, no happiness on that scroll. Couldn't they have like an e-book in those days? They had to have a scroll. Now, typically, think of this, right? Not only is a scroll filled with woe and lament and mourning, but typically in those days, scrolls were written only on one side. This is what I found out in looking, this, looking into this a little bit, right? This was specifically mentioned to be written on both sides. This is a full book of mourning and woe. This is not a good thing. So here it is made clear that this scroll was written on to using both sides. This is probably to make it known that whatever was written was very long and very detailed. And it wasn't going to be pretty. It's, it's well, you know, it's, it's just it's. So Ezekiel is to figuratively, completely, and utterly consume this writing. It's on a scroll. Think about that. And we're going to wrap up with this thought. He's supposed to consume it. Now, you know when you look at something or read something, it's one thing. But when you take it closer to you and put it in your mouth and taste it, if it's a good flavor, like you can read about a piece of savory cooking, right, or a nice piece of confection. Reading about it is one thing. Being shown a picture of it or being shown the actual thing is the other thing. But put that thing in your mouth and roll it around your tongue for a while. That's when it gets personal. We agree? 
And this is what this is what basically he's saying. Sue, you still there? Oh, there you are. Okay, you dropped out for a second. All right, I'll, I'll save you battery in a second here. So, this is the point, and he says, and now in verse three, chapters one through four, he said, "Son of man, now eat what you find in this scroll. Eat this scroll, then go speak to the house of Israel." You see what I'm saying here? You must consume it and taste it. Roll it around your mouth and swallow it. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, eat the scroll that I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. In verse 4, then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. And in eating it, and we're going to continue later on. when we, We're going to stop here. But I'm going to also show you that this is a technique that God uses at least one other time. And that's when he tells John in the book of Revelation to eat a scroll. That was as honey in his mouth and bitter when it hit his belly so we're going to stop there for now so we're at the beginning of ezekiel's assignment we can see it's a hard assignment he's being called as a mere human being but with a special purpose being made in the image of god now god's going to fill him with the holy spirit to do god's work and again all of this reflects on us as christians so anyway all right that's it for now